suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there, and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yep, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce Trial of the Century, Part 19, Taking on a Lost Cause. So we return to the trial of Leopold and Loeb. And after a summer spent arguing in what was literally an overheated, broiling Chicago courtroom, the moment that everyone had been waiting for was finally presenting itself. In modern parlance, it was almost showtime. Judge Caverly, uh, State's Attorney Robert Crow, the family of Bobby Franks, the nation's press, and most notably um, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb themselves and their families recognized that the most decisive moment of what had been referred to as the trial of the century in which their fate, whether they might live or die, was now literally at hand. Quite literally, their lives would hang in the balance. And it was time the highly anticipated, momentous closing arguments were to be made. And Clarence Darrow for the defense and Robert Crow for the prosecution. And at this critical juncture, as far as Leopold and Loeb were concerned, their fate appeared sealed. The nation's press had been calling for their heads. The Chicago press on its editorial pages had made it perfectly clear where they stood concerning the two murdering deviates. They should be strung up. That's what the papers wanted. And Robert uh, uh, Crow, the prosecutor himself, in headlines that blazed across the front pages of Every one of those Chicago newspapers had promised the citizens of Chicago and the citizens of the state of Illinois and the family of Bobby Franks in particular, the boys would hang. I mean, this is sort of the Chicago version of the wild, wild west. Like, we'll give them a fair trial and then we'll hang them in the morning. Yeah, for Leopold and Loeb, any attempt to keep them from the gallows, a You know, it definitely appeared to be a lost cause. And the outcome of the 1924 trial of the century, the fate of Nathan Leopold and and Richard Dickey Loeb, appeared to be as certain as that fate that assuredly awaited England two decades later when in late May, early June of 1940, the Nazi blitzkrieg had driven back, pinchered in, and trapped the entirety of the British army, you know, stuck and stranded between the unstoppable, quickly advancing, hostile and murderous German panzer divisions, which hounded them unmercifully and the North Sea. Escape from which beach at Dunkirk appeared to be impossible. The English needed what had often appeared in Euripides' Greek dramas, 
something, you know, something to save the day at the very last moment against impossible odds when, when to the hero all seemed utterly, hopelessly lost. It required the dramatist to introduce to the, you know, you know, on the edge of their seats audience, the do ex machina. It's liberal, uh, literal translation, the God as machine. At the absolute most perilous moment in the drama, when all appears lost, suddenly a God was introduced by the playwright into the unfolding action by means of a giant, giant crane that would hang over the stage, and by which entry the god, the machine, the duex machina, would enter the, the situation and decide the final outcome in favor of the hero. And in the case of the Brits, um, perilously and hopelessly trapped on that beach in Dunkirk, when all really did appear to be lost, there showed up, out of the blue, beyond a prayer even, the unimaginable duex machina in the form of the famous Hitler halt order. Hitler had ordered his unstoppable, murderous, marauding, uh, Wehrmacht panzer division to halt in place. Halt in place. Order them to stop their advance upon the unorganized, unorganized, in full retreat British expeditionary force. No attempt should be made to finish off the BEF while they were defenseless and trapped on the beach at Dunkirk. Who could know? This was incredible. Hitler's halt order was unexplainable. It made no sense, no military sense. It was for the BEF and for all of England. It was nothing short of a miracle. It was the entry of a do ex machina. The only thing that could have possibly saved the BEF from total annihilation. And no one, no one, no German commander, no British commander could ever have imagined such an order might be issued by the Fuhrer. Yet Hitler issued this order, this halt order. God. Well, it really was tragedy. It was Greek theater. And the Brits, the unexpected beneficiaries of Hitler's notorious, never to be understood, you know, never to be explained sufficiently, militarily unjustifiable. This nonsensical halt order, which Hitler days or uh, later revoked under pressure from his incensed military commanders whom saw the possibility of crushing, annihilating in military terms, defeating in detail, the entirety of the British army. Why, why, oh why would Hitler do this? What was he thinking? What was he doing? Did he know what he was doing? The duex machina had literally dropped from the sky in the form of that Hitler halt order. And by the time he revoked the order days later, it was too late because the British had taken advantage of the delay and placed in position holding forces such that the panzer advance would be slowed down and opposed. And those British blocking units, 
they could and would hold off the Panzer divisions and the growing number of Wehrmacht ground troops that um, supported them. But they could only do so for a short while before they eventually would be overrun. And for those BEF forces left behind in the holding action, you know, against a far superior and growing force and without the potential for relief, without the possibility of evacuation, well, this for them was simply a case of, you know, bad luck of the draw, really. But in the blessed interim, Originally designed and planned to take place over a 48-hour period, if lucky enough to hold off those Panzer divisions, England, under Churchill's orders, hoped, no, no, England prayed that 48,000 men might be successfully evacuated, rescued from that beach, saved from certain imminent destruction. That was all they could hope for. And the British activated Operation Dynamo to do so. And as a direct result result of that halt order and the activation of Operation Dynamo in defiance of all expectations, in defiance of all odds, over now a nine-day period of time, not two days, the British successfully evacuated not 48,000 men. No, an astonishing 338 thousand allied troops 90 uh, percent of them british they were ferried across the english channel back to britain to live to fight another day thanks to a hastily assembled armada that consisted of nearly a thousand vessels of which there were in the english channel Naval cruisers, fishing boats, yachts, trawlers, sailboats, ferries, rowboats, almost almost anything that floated, whose captains had voluntarily taken to the sea to rescue the desperately trapped British forces on that beach in Dunkirk in France. That Dunkirk evacuation effort went on despite the fact that the Luftwaffe strayed from the skies above the channel, you know, both the British forces that were queued up on the beach and the vast array uh, of that most irregular, irregular armada that was out at sea. It was just an amazing, remarkable performance, that relief effort. Post that 1940 miracle at Dunkirk, leave it to Winston Churchill to have possessed the necessary oratorical skills by which he convincingly made the case. The desperate and heroic evacuation of the BEF had been nothing short of a miracle and a military victory. From a morale standpoint, it no doubt had been. But Churchill, you know, he, he wasn't fooled even as he would paint the vivid picture of his people's gl- glorious efforts. And they were, in the face of overwhelming odds, he made the point clearly. Wars were not and never would be won by evacuations, no matter how noble the Dunkirk evacuations had been. But the PM could be spellbinding when weaving a tale. He would enthrall people the world over. Yes, he would. Of that, there was no doubt. There could be plenty of evidence that Churchill could move the minds of men. 
And forevermore, that evacuation would be known to history as the glorious, unforeseeable, unimaginable miracle at Dunkirk. And this is relevant because 16 years previously, there stood two teenage boys, two teenage defendants in a courtroom in Chicago whom themselves were in desperate need of a miracle. Actually, they were in desperate need of two things that might keep them from the hangman's noose. They needed their own personal personal version of that miracle at Dunkirk, and they needed a defense attorney as eloquent and as persuasive as would be Winston Churchill to make that miracle in Chicago happen. Really what they needed when all was said and done was an appearance of a Euripidean like du ex machina. And for Leopold and Loeb, it had to happen. The two boys would need one of those shocking moments in time. An historic moment, like the moment when TV broadcaster Al Michaels during the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, when the American amateur hockey team in one of the greatest upsets in sports history beat the invincible Russian Red Army team 4-3. to Michaels screaming to TV viewers, those sports fans, the immortal line, you know, rhetorically, yes, but in true disbelief. Do you believe in miracles? Yes now known to sports history as the miracle on ice because beating the Russians had seemed a lost cause after the American team had been crushed by that very same Red Army team 10-3 to just a few weeks before in a warm-up game at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Now, somehow, against all odds, the American amateur team impossibly had beat the Russians and then would win the gold medal. For Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, 56 years before, all this miracle on ice nonsense, all this stuff, the two of them desperately needed a miracle of their own in the form of a Euripidean du ex machina to manifest itself, or if one did not appear shortly, they'd both be dead. As Judge Caverly um, set the schedule docket for final arguments. It appeared all but certain that nothing short of a Dunkirk-like miracle or a miracle on ice would save the lives of Leopold and Loeb. Without that miracle, they'd be on their way to Hades, where most of the nation thought the two defendants belonged in the first place. You know, author Anthony Burgess, later whom had made so picturesquely uh, clear in his fantastic but ultra-violent novel, Clockwork Orange, he made the point, it is the existence of free will that makes us human. And absent the capacity to commit evil, Burgess made the case that we are not fully human. And if one accepts Anthony Burgess's argument that the existence of free will is essential to being human, then it was irrefutable that Leopold and Loeb qualified as human. 
I mean, this was this was an easy assumption to make, given the two boys had admitted that they had planned the homicide for the better part of one year. They used their free will in this fashion. And given then that the defendants had both the capacity for and the willingness to of that free will to commit evil, they were human. And as humans, not supermen, they were subject to the law and they were not above the law. And the Illinois legislature representing the citizens of Illinois had seen fit to pass legislation authorizing the use of capital punishment for especially heinous crimes as the means by which to best ensure that the peace would be maintained. And if the legislator needed a model case of criminal abuse of one's free will such that capital punishment might be in order, might be warranted, then the murder of Bobby Franks by Leopold and Loeb was that model case. So to stave off the hangman, Leopold and Loeb needed the do ex machina to appear on the stage right now and enter stage left, do ex machina, ex machina, Clarence Darrell. Unlike Winston Churchill, whose words would be designed to inspire the free world in its fight to the death, if necessary, against true evil, Clarence Darrow had been retained for the express purposes of speaking those words necessary to keep alive two boys whom had confessed to committing true evil. Darrow had to convince one man only, though. And this was the, the judge, Judge John R. Cavalli. Darrow had to move that man. But in Chicago in 1924, if Leopold and Loeb wished to live on, first they needed plenty of help, and they require some luck. Their version of that unforeseeable, unexpected Hitlerian halt order that had provided the British with that most you know, precious commodity just when they needed it, time. They needed time to successfully evaluate their men. And Leopold and Loeb experienced their first stroke of good fortune when their case had been assigned to Judge Caverly, a judge whom over the course of a long storied career on the bench had a proven track record of showing a decided leniency in sentencing youthful defenders. And in the poker game of life, therefore, as teenage defenders, Leopold and Loeb could not have drawn a better hand. And as they and as they need, you know, as an advocate, a skilled lawyer, a man who might demonstrate the oratorical skills and you know, the gumption later shown by Winston Churchill, they did find that man in Clarence Darrell. They need those skills as had been demonstrated by Winston Churchill. They needed to see them in Clarence Darrell. They needed as a defense counsel, a man with a thick skin whom possessed the willingness, the heart, the intellect, and the courage to take on a lost cause. And Clarence Darrow was about to take center stage in Judge Cavalier's courtroom and make his closing argument on behalf of his clients in what appeared to the world at large as a lost cause. That was for sure. And for the family of 
Bobby Franks after after their son's senseless murder. And as would occur to survivors of the Holocaust two decades later, belief in God, belief in the existence of God and finding solace in religion as an answer to existential questions and the rationale to explain you know, why things had happened or why they had not happened would simply prove unsatisfying. Classical um, secularization theory posits that modernity and religion are just incompatible, mutually exclusive. Religion persists simply because most of civilization cannot handle the existential angst associated with nothingness that will be our fate after death. And to most people, this thought of nothingness to come overwhelms them. Religion promises them some hope in perpetuity. And any religion, by the way, not providing such hope in the form of eternal life uh, after death is bound to prove unattractive. And it's going to fail as it will serve no purpose. Without the promise of eternal life to its adherents, any religion that denies to its adherents, this hope is absent. It's reason d'etre. It's reason for being. There is no God. He does not exist. And even if one is stupid, this eventually will become clear. And Nietzsche, he would have ideas on this subject. And in the meantime, despite the fact that the laws of social entropy are inviolate, that there is no going back, once decay begins, as with rust, things diminish, deteriorate until destruction. Desiccation applies to all organizations and all systems. Entropy is the most powerful force at work on planet Earth. And despite these truths, Clarence Darrow was about to suggest in a 12-hour monologue to follow that he had some other ideas on this matter. And the court, in the form of Judge Caverly, at least, he was willing to listen. So, hey, to you, I suggest, thanks for listening and hope you return as we approach the closing argument in the trial of Leopold and Loeb. Hope you enjoyed. Goodbye, and hope you'll be back. I slipped from the harbor, head out to the sea. Crystal blue water surrounding me Tap to the wind, taste the sea breeze Tropical heaven on the coral sea A little more rum, I think of my wife What did I do, have I ruined my life? I tell her I've changed, become a new man I promise I will and I know that I can When did the skies change, when did we turn back? How am I ever gonna get myself back? The sea's now boiling and 
I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life From tomorrow, days from the land Nothing can save me unless fate lends a hand Storm, it is worse than I no control The wind and the waves are taking their toll I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end There was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dreamed for the calm of the sea A beautiful face smiling back at me The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home When did the skies change? When did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life When did the skies change? When did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat I think of my wife, I'm lost in a drift on the high sea.